and this is a longer discussion about like how people really are actually overvaluing writing. This is coming from the greatest writer of the fourth century, at least. Plato has really mastered this technology, but he's it's really about this other thing that he's created. It's about philosophy's ability to form a soul and form connections between people. And this happens over time. And you need that personal contact for him. And the personal contact, I mean, now you can see it's the, the network is the thing. The individuals are the thing. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. And honestly, it's really good. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter, and I honestly think it's the coolest newsletter in the world. And it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. And also, when you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, what's going on, everybody? This podcast is going to be about the life of arguably the single most influential philosopher ever in the entire history of Western thought, Plato. We, however, are going to focus on something that you've probably never heard anyone talk about when it comes to Plato, which is the question of how practically Plato came to power as a philosopher. Plato, I think, understood some secrets about the nature of influence and how ideas transmit over time through networks. And Plato built his body of work and his famous academy according to a kind of unique operating philosophy that I never heard anyone explain until I met Alex Petkus, who's joining us here today. Alex has a PhD from Princeton in classics, and he's an expert in ancient Greece. He hosts an amazing podcast called The Cost of Glory, which you should totally go subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. It catalogs the lives of all the great figures of the ancient world. Alex has been actually a member of the Other Life community for a couple of years now. I got to know him pretty well at two of our annual meetups, and I've been wanting to record this podcast for a long time, so I'm really pleased to finally bring it to you all today. So Alex, we're already friends. Let's just skip the small talk and tell us, you know, what, what does the life of Plato have to do with the life of a contemporary thinker, a writer, or a philosopher today? Take us back to that time and just kind of sketch the cultural and economic context. It's kind of weirdly similar to the present in some ways, is it not? Yeah, it is. And uh, and I'll just say thanks for, for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited to share. So, and in and, and part be, because it's been such an inspiring story to me. And so I'm hoping that other people will find it useful. Um, so uh, I think Plato's time is really becoming more relevant now, uh, especially because he lives in this world of uh, decentralized, like a, like an academic, not even academic, intellectual free-for-all uh, that is the city of Athens in the late 5th, early 4th century BC, uh, which is um, you know, a world without intellectual institutions. It's, it's a world, well, not, not, not like formal institutions. It's, it's a world with customs, but no certifying bodies. There's no academia right he kind of invents the uh, the concept and it's whatever he invents it's i think pretty different from what we normally associate with academia um but so like i think to to appreciate why plato is relevant today you have to understand it. it's a decentralized world and he's creating new possibilities 
and um and he's also uh dealing with new media technology that that kind of changes the game and he's one of the major game changers in that play with his new media technology which is writing it's not that new we'll get into this a little bit but I mean, essentially uh writing is kind of newly relevant newly like new possibilities are being unlocked with writing it kind of takes a while to hit in greek culture it's it's like full potential so that's that's like the big the big picture here and um i mean maybe we should get into the story absolutely T- maybe start with writing you know what is the what it, what is the experience up until this point with philosophical writing yeah so writing comes to greece through Phoenicia in the 9th, 8th century BC. Plato's living in the late 5th, so almost 300 years. But what you have in classical Athens and in the democracies, Athens being the biggest one, that arise in the 5th century, uh, the 400s BC, is widespread literacy for the first time. And this is one of the things about the Greek alphabet that isn't really there with a lot of these Semitic alphabets is not that hard to learn. And, um, you know, like the Semitic alphabets don't have vowels, which makes it confusing. The Greek alphabet has all the sounds represented at like every phoneme. So, um, with, with democracy comes this widespread, like incentivization to, for more or less regular people to learn how to write and to read, especially to read. But you know, if you want to participate in the offices of the democracy, because every citizen can run for office, be become a bureaucrat for a year, uh, do important things, you got to learn how to write. So you you have in Athens this unique situation for like the first time in Western history where you have a reading public that can actually sustain some kind of a book trade. Um, Now, it's not a, a lucrative trade because producing a book is very expensive and you there's no intellectual property rights so it's a terrible way to make money uh but you can it's it's a great way to get your brand out um by by writing books and there's people to read it so as far as like philosophical writing before plato there's not a whole lot but you know he does describe in the dialogues that he's writing he's writing the dialogues starting in the 390s so he's like probably in his 30s before he really starts producing dialogues he, and he's looking back at you know the the four 30s the times of the Peloponnesian War and he there you definitely get the sense that there's there's books around that Socrates is buying Parmenides's book so and when we talk about books we're talking about scrolls and they're not that long but it's like some intellectual will come to town and he'll give lectures and he'll put out his you know for us like a 20 page summary of his thoughts or Parmenides has this poem uh in hexameters that's pretty short by our standards but you know they they want to have like a token that people can have so so there is like philosophical writing that's kind of coming out and emerging uh but the style is very uneven they're not easy to read they're not like it's not obvious that you should write exactly the way that you talk and like people haven't really worked out what the standard of, of good writing, of good intellectual writing is. There's historians, Herodotus is writing around this time. People are writing histories, but um, 
there's not a lot of like prose writing. So, so it's kind of, um, uh, you know, as, as far as philosophical writing goes, there, there's like a, a lot of progress to be made. Let's, let's put it that way. Okay. So there are books, there are scrolls. Mm -hmm. And if you're a serious thinker of which there were some at the time, it behooved you to put down your thoughts and your theories in these books. And these books might be copied a couple times. They might travel a little bit from this new reading public, but the books, it's the books themselves would not be sold at any kind of scale because it was too difficult to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, they would be sold. There, there are books sales, um, but, but no author is making real money from selling books. No, no, no. The person who makes the money is the person who copied the book. So then that's a different business, right? Like, you know, right. that's the, that's the work. Um, so writing a book back then was basically, as you said at the beginning, a matter of brand, really. It's a matter of you put your ideas down and if they have currency, if they are important to people, then there will be word of mouth basically from the people who read the book down to everyone else. Essentially. And that's a way you can kind of build other income streams. So, you know, if you're, if you're a higher kind of honor philosopher through, if you have a better brand, you know, you can charge more for pupils if you want to charge for pupils. And so there's the way that you can convert that, but it's, it's a, it's not a direct conversion. So what was Plato's big idea here then? Like what he's looking at this scene, what, it, what is he seeing and what is he thinking about? Oh, okay. I'm going to insert myself in a novel and more powerful way. Well, I think to get to this, we have to start to tell a little bit of the beginning of his story and uh, and like why he turns to philosophy in the first place. And I think the reason that people don't, there's, there's a good chance that people don't really know this story today, even if you've taken a course or two on Plato in college or just have been reading the, the, the popular works on your own, like Plato is doesn't start off as an 18 year old thinking, I'm gonna be an intellectual, I'm gonna be a philosopher just like Socrates, right? And the reason that we don't hear the story is because he tells the story in this famous problematic text called today, the seventh letter. And he, uh, the, I'll, I'll make it brief here, but basically the, the, the authenticity of the seventh letter is debated today. In antiquity, it was held as gen genuine. So there's a lot of letters from philosophers and intellectuals floating around in antiquity and it was proven in the 18th century that by this famous guy Bentley that uh, a lot of these, maybe all of them in his opinion, but certainly a lot of them are spurious. Uh, you know, you could call them forgeries. You could call them, you know, playful literary fictions. To, just depending on the case. I mean, and there's so many different versions of this. But um, so Plato's letters have kind of come under this suspicion, and there's 13 of them, and it's my opinion that the 12 other ones are spurious but uh and this may be a possibility that some of them are real but it's my opinion also and and not just me that the seventh is actually genuine and possibly is the very letter that started the trend of people writing letters and ascribing them to philosophers to tell a kind of lurid you know fascinating story and give the kind of character of the philosopher so so um and um i'd say today's scholars are like 60 40 maybe against the platonic authorship of the seventh letter, but why it's, um, but I think they're wrong. Uh, and, and, and I'm, I have some pretty serious names on my side, like Charles Kahn and, uh, A.E. E. Taylor. And there's a lot of serious people that take the seventh letter seriously. And I mean, we could get it in the authenticity debate. Um, in a nutshell, it's like, it's un, you can't prove authenticity. You can only prove, you can only disprove it. And the arguments 
that you can come up with against the seventh letter's authenticity that are like hard arguments. There's about as many against the Republic. So like, right. we'll did Plato write the Republic? We'll prove it. it. I, yeah, consider it stipulated. Uh, for All people right. who don't know, I believe your dissertation was actually about Greek letter writing in particular. Yeah, so, so yeah, I studied Take your word for it. Great. Stipulate it. <laughs> Let's yeah. not get into the weeds there. But so, uh, but I just want to clear the air. This is not like a kind of cockamamie theory of some sure. like, pseudo, yeah. I might be a pseudo intellectual, but anyway, this is this is real. So, anyway, and why why it's important? Here's why it's important. It's about it's a long letter. It's about thirty pages long. He writes it at the end of his life. It's a retrospective on his whole involvement in this political drama at Syracuse in Sicily, the greatest city of Sicily, a Greek city. But at the beginning of it, he gives an autobiography. He gives his account of why he got into philosophy and it's fascinating and people don't read it because it's like oh maybe Plato didn't write it this is the only time in all of Plato's writings where he speaks in his own voice and he tells his story from his perspective it's amazing so here's here's the story that he tells when he was a boy when he was a young man he wanted to do the thing that every all of the other people of his class in society wanted to do and his class is really the political class in Athens. He's very, very prominent family-wise. His uncle is Critias. Uh, you know, Charmides is another, is a cousin of his. He's related to Pericles by marriage on his mother's side. He's a descendant of Solon. I mean, he's just super blue blood Athenian. And um, and what does it for him that that kind of changes his directions? He wants to go into you know power and politics, become a general someday. That was a clear path for him is two things. First of all, it is the, so at the end of the Peloponnesian War, which is 431 to 404, the Peloponnesian War ends in 404. He's 24 years old. And, um, and this is a story that I tell on the Cost of Glory podcast in the life of Lysander, if you want the background. But the Spartans win this great epic war with the Athenians, this inter-Greek war. And they install a pro-Sparta government in Athens. It's called the 30. The 30 tyrants, it's called today sometimes, um, you know, from the anti-30 perspective. But basically, Plato is, you know, starts off thinking, oh, great, this is going to be good government at last because his family is very much the, the aristocrats. And like, maybe democracy is, is not the greatest system. It definitely got us into this war. There were all kinds of abuses and demagoguery. Maybe this will be the way that we should run our state, that all Greeks should run their states, the Spartan way, which is oligarchy. The 30 comes to power. His uncle Critias is the number one guy in the 30. His, his cousin Charmides is another member of this regime. And then the, the 30 ends up being like pretty bad, actually. They, they end up being abusive. They... They have all these threats to their power. They end up, you know, executing citizens for their money. It's a mess. And then they try to get Socrates involved because Socrates has got a lot of friends in the 30 and he kind of gets tarred. And, and the 30 lasts about a year before there's a, a an overthrow of, of that regime. And ev everybody wants to distance themselves from the 30 tyrants and especially from Critias. Critias dies in the revolution, and basically Plato's very uncle becomes 
uh, as some people have, have, have pointed out, he becomes the kind of Hitler of the fourth century, the person that is the worst possible example of oligarchic excess. Anything that smells like Critias is bad. We can't, we can't, you know. So Critias is like the Hitler and Plato's his, his you know, nephew. <clears throat> and so Plato tells a story very, very briefly in the seventh letter. He's like, I realized uh, maybe I didn't want to get into politics at that point. And what happened after that was even worse because within a few years, there's all these legal recriminations and, you know, um, kind of infighting among the Athenian political classes. And this is how Socrates ends up getting executed because he was associated with the regime of the 30 corrupting the youth is kind of a, like a, a metonym for being associated with the young kind of fascist youth that were supporters of the 30. And, um, so maybe it was because he was teaching in piety, or maybe it was just because he was associated with the wrong people that Socrates gets executed by a court of his own countrymen. And Plato, uh, says after that, like, this was kind of a wake up moment for me. And, um, there's a passage in there where he says something in, in the seventh letter, very similar to what he says in a point in the Republic. Like that was when I decided that woes will never cease for mankind until either the rulers come to love philosophy or philosophers come to be rulers. And, um, I'm paraphrasing there, but that's, that's the gist of what he says. And, and essentially he says like, from then on, I was on a quest to, to figure out like, what was the alternative? How could, um, like, because one, one of the things he says, I'll just read right here, uh, a sentence or two. Uh, the older I grew, the more I realized how difficult it is to manage, manage a city's affairs rightly. It's like, there were a lot of people who thought democracy was the best system. Plato and Critias and maybe Socrates thought oligarchy was a better system. But look what happened. Um, for I saw it was impossible to do anything without friends and loyal followers. And to find such men ready at hand would be a piece of sheer good luck since our city was no longer guided by the customs and practices of our fathers, while to train up new ones was anything but easy. So maybe you find the right system, but you put the wrong people in charge of that right system. And to me, this, is a, this sums up how why Plato turns to philosophy. This is like his big idea as far as like the motivation for the whole project of what he does is to, f to find such men that is that are so difficult to find. Okay, it's one thing you come up with the system, but then you have to like either locate, gather, or create the people that can be the ideal rulers of a state. And that's his retrospective, you know, as he's age 70, looking back on a crisis. But so I think if you look at that, um, you know, he spends the next maybe 10 years uh, uh, starting to write. That's when he starts writing the dialogues. And, um, and so I think, I think first of all, one takeaway just from that at the very beginning is like, here's an intellectual, a writer who had real ambition, real worldly ambition that really fueled him. And it, it wasn't like a lack of concern for practical affairs that fueled a man like Plato. He's like channeling that into his work. And I think if you have that ambition, like, like, you know, there's definitely like, ways to see that as, as, as like fuel rather than a distraction to your intellectual project.
Okay. And which, which kind of goes against, I think, some of the received wisdom that you might get in a kind of academic context. Hey, everybody. This is just a quick interruption to invite you to the new Other Life community, which I've been working on now quietly for the past year. We're really moving now in the direction of a network state. It's pretty crazy. We will give you a fully fledged personal server and a special desktop application from our partners at the Holium company that will let all members communicate with each other and compute together on the peer-to-peer sensor-proof Urbit network. So it's still early, but I think it's insanely cool. All I wanna say is that if you're into the other life ethos, like if you're a writer or a software developer or whatever, but you're all about freedom and self-reliance outside of institutions, then we really wanna meet you. The community now is totally free. We have other ways now of filtering and sorting people later based on their abilities. So it's kind of like the USA of the 1840s, like anyone could get on a ship and go to America, but only some would rise the ranks depending on what they were able to do. So to join, just go to otherlife.co forward slash join. That's otherlife.co forward slash join. I sincerely look forward to meeting you. And that's all I have for now. Back to the show. Yeah, there's this impression a lot of people have that a life of academic humanism must be a life that rejects worldly affairs and ambitions. And you're saying that, no, at at the very founding of Western philosophy, the opposite was the case. Yeah, definitely. And so, so he's looking at the scene, he starts writing and here are the playbooks. There's, there's three basic playbooks that he can see. Okay. Uh, first of all, there's the traditional one, the poet. The poet is the Greek intellectual par excellence of the archaic period, the kind of pre, pre-classical um, world of Greeks, maybe sort of pre-democratic. This is an ancient, ancient Indo-European role, of course, the, bar, the epic bards, Homer and the Vedas. So, but in Greek culture, the poet is, um, you know, they're composing mythic poems, they're retelling stories for occasions, uh, they're sometimes local they're sometimes itinerant the really good ones are probably going around from city to city collecting big fees prizes and these are really producers for leisure events they're party performers and yet they are seen as edifying educational figures and they can make good money they can make money you know it's the patron model for the for the most part but you know a really well-off po- uh, a really well-respected poet you will find them tutoring sons of wealthy men and maybe they'll have a farm or something. They're probably from the upper crust of society. And there's a, there's a big range of poets too. Um, but, but there, there's, there's definitely a model there for converting your kind of entertainment creds into more stable income through tutoring, teaching kids, you know, to memorize Homer and other poems. So that's a traditional model. And they'd call it musique, music, the art, the, the stuff of the muses, which is not just music, it's also poems. Uh, it's, it's the stuff of memory. Model two, more recent. It's the logographer, the speechwriter. And this is really important in Athens because in their legal system, you can't, if you want to prosecute somebody or defend yourself from a prosecution, you can't hire a lawyer. You have to speak in your own person. And so you can get somebody to write a speech for you that you can perform. Nobody has to know that you bought a speech and memorized it. And there's definitely a market for that. That's a great way to make a steady income. The most famous figures associated with this, Lysias, 
Isocrates actually did this earlier in his career. Isocrates goes on to be a big competitor of Plato's. Uh, Antiphon, the student, uh, the teacher of Thucydides, the historian. And there's a way to kind of parlay that speech writing platform into political theory. This is what Antiphon does. Um, so Thucydides is kind of in this world of like logographer, speech writer, political theorists. There's, there's definitely like, you can see the, you know, knowing the affairs of the city, knowing how to write, argue, um, they, they bleed over really easily and nicely. Uh, but so, so that's kind of like an intermediate category. The third category is the famous one that people are most familiar with probably is that's the sophist. If you've read any of Plato's dialogues, you probably know about figures like Gorgias, uh, Protagoras, these great public intellectuals who are often kind of itinerant, but Athens is like the New York City of the Greek world. And they're coming in and they're, similarly, they're, they're probably bringing some books with, with them to Athens, but it's really, it's kind of like a, a, a modification of the poet model where they're, they're public entertainers first and foremost. And then they they gather students together, but they're they they teach you about a range of issues, and they have like kind of different methods. Of then the poet, they'll teach you. They talk about teaching arguments, and they'll also teach you about the myths. But um, they they have just a whole a whole range of things, and it's not just like they're practice. They're 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 not just promising to teach you how to speak, um, but they're also like. There's not really a distinction in the minds of your normal citizen between those guys and somebody like a Parmenides or Empedocles or Heraclitus, who we would think of as like, that's the philosophy department. And then Gorgias and Protagoras, that's like the English department. Like we, we see this clear distinction in our mind because Plato made the distinction for us. There's not really a distinction before Plato between the sophists, the rhetoric professors, and the kind of more metaphysical, uh, physiological thinkers. Uh, so these are the, the models that Plato is looking at and he ends up doing something different. And he, ha I don't think he's really figured out what it is in the three nineties, but he starts writing these dialogues. And I think a, really interesting to look at the early dialogues and what exactly he does. And this is for me, a lesson that I've tried to apply with my own podcast. And I think it's something that Plutarch really picked up on. Start by talking, by channeling the authority of people that are, are already familiar to your audience. Look at who, who are the characters in the early dialogues. Gorgias, uh, Lachis and Nicias, famous generals. Um, you know, Ion, this, this famous poet, Protagoras, famous sophist. And Plato is essentially writing historical fiction about these people, these dialogues. Um, famous figures with Socrates interacting with them. So he's, you know, he's telling stories about people that everyone's already interested in. Everybody's, there's like a lot of name recognition that we don't really see, but they would have seen. I think that's a really important part that he's, he's channeling that authority. And, uh, and he's, he's also, you know, we talked about how you don't make money off of books, but it's a, it's a way of brand building. Um, he's writing for, um, He's really leveraging this technology of writing to the max by uh, writing, and he's not just writing for an Athenian audience. I think you can really see this at the very beginning of his dialogues. He's really writing for this pan-Hellenic audience because the Greek world, 
is all of these independent city-states from Sicily, from Marseille in France, all the way to, you know, Focaya and Cyprus. And I mean, just it's all over the, the, the Mediterranean. And there's like wealthy, well-connected people in all these places. And there's a reading public there that you can't make money off of selling books to them, but you can definitely get your brand out and your ideas out. And, can, and you know, people are looking for good books. So you write the absolute best possible thing you can write. And Plato's dialogues are... They have this combination of seeming familiar and colloquial and like you're there with these guys and it's really smooth and it's, you know, even the kind of technical stuff, it's, it's not that hard to understand, but, um, it's, uh, it's not actually as colloquial as it seems in Greek. It gives the impression of being colloquial, but he writes in a style that actually doesn't have all of these local attic you know, slangs and phraseologies that you would only know if you were an Athenian. It's a very kind of polished international Greek. And you can contrast it with the plays of Aristophanes. But Plato is really writing for this international or this interstate audience, like brand building on a large scale. Okay, in interesting. So just to pause on those two points. The first one is that when you're first starting out as a writer or thinker, no one cares about you, but they care about the big famous names they've heard about that they Damn. have a kind of that they have a kind of respect for already. And so, if you're just channeling them, they're going to listen to you because you're channeling these names that you that people already respect. That was one. It sounds like uh, one of Plato's uh, kind of key insights that that helped him be successful. But it sounds like the other is that whereas minor writers or you know less great writers such as Aristophanes, were writing in a local dialect for a local audience using the the language and the norms and the, the points of interest to a smaller audience. Plato said, no, I'm going to go as general as possible. I'm going to try to produce the most significant, truthful things I can that are maximally relevant to the maximum number of people ever. And that's another choice he made that you think led to his great success. Is that understanding it correctly? I think that's fair. And it's also another way to think about it is like, you know, Aristophanes, the man on the street can just go to the plays of Aristophanes and laugh his ass off because there's, you know, fart jokes and uh, they'll talk about, you know, that special Athenian sausage. And like for for a long time, I'm sure that Aristophanes just and that's a way to immediately just reach a big audience, like popular, fun stuff. But Plato goes not so much general, but like he, you know, he, he targets the upper crust across the Mediterranean. Like there's, you know, it's a small number of people who can actually read these things or who actually is interested in reading these things. And he's aiming at those people from the get go. And that's a longer game. Like that's a far seeing game. Like I want whatever this project ends up being, I want to get the, the best people interested in this from the get go, the smartest, most ambitious kind of people that I can find in the Greek world. And just to pause on that, not to belabor a point, but to make it super clear, this is really relevant to people in our orbit and other life community, or just people like us, people in our networks, because this is essentially what's at stake in the current kind of strategic question one has to answer for oneself about, are you going to try to build a big audience fast, or are you mm -hmm. going to try to do really sophisticated original work and build a smaller but more elite audience? over a longer amount of time. This is still a trade-off that we face today. And it sounds like, you know, learning from the life of Plato, you lean towards this view where it's like, don't 
go for the lowest common denominator, trying to write in a kind of accessible vernacular that's going to be like really cool and and fun for a specific type of you know larger mass audience, but rather do the most sophisticated work possible. So your work will spread among the small number of elite people who are interested and capable of understanding that. That is really what I think Plato's playbook is. And it's like, that's not an easy niche to address. Like there are plenty of niches where you could, you know, signal and, and go viral within the, these various verticals within kind of internet writing. Um, but, you know, how well is that going to transfer that? Think of, think of your kind of like internet vernacular niche as one city, but can you target the kind of the, the people across a, a number of different cities while kind of staying true to what you think is the essence of whatever, whatever community you think you associate the most with something like that, maybe. Right. Yeah. In other words, if you could be admired and respected as a thinker by 500, you know, billionaires and millionaires and, and, you know, powerful, educated, sophisticated people, you would much rather have just an email list of those 500 people following you than an email list of what probably a hundred thousand normal people. The, the first one is literally more valuable and more influential and more powerful according to the, the world, the practical worldview of, of Plato's model. That's right. Yeah. And I think that you, the, as you go on through Plato's career, you really see this, um, see this playing out. So I'm, right. I'm kind of retrojecting, yeah. but I think it's there from the beginning. No, that's fantastic. Let's just play it forward. Tell us about maybe, well, if, if you know the best way to take it, feel free to override my suggestion. But maybe the one next question would be, what was his first big break? You know, he starts off as, as writing these dialogues. Does he immediately have currency and, and significance because of how he's sociologically positioned? Or is he kind of toiling in obscurity for a little while and then has a big break? Like, how does his rise unfold? Yeah, it's it's hard to say whether it was a break or not, but the first moment where he kind of enters the stage of history is in 388 BC. He's 40, so he's born in 428, so he's like 40 years old. Probably been writing dialogues for a good 10 years. Um, he goes west to the Italian Greeks of southern Italy and to Sicily. And uh, this is something that he talks about in his uh, seventh letter. Another great text on this, if you want to, while it's on my mind, is a Plutarch's Life of Dion. And we'll talk about Dion a little later, uh, associate of Plato. So Plato goes, and we're not really sure why he goes west, for certain, but there's a pretty good guess we can make. Um, and what, what this, the, the one reason that the sources agree on is that he wanted to see Mount Etna. The Greeks don't have active volcanoes in there in, in Greece, but Mount Etna is an active volcano. Empedocles supposedly uh, threw himself into it when he decided his time was up. And um, you want to see Mount Etna, kind of scientific interest, maybe. But there are... Um, well, first of all, uh, he ends up visiting, at the, maybe at, at some point on this trip, he ends up visiting Syracuse for the first time. This is his first visit to Syracuse, the first of three. And he actually somehow gets welcomed into the court of 
maybe the most powerful man at the time in the Greek world of all, Dionysius, the tyrant of Syracuse. It was this great legendary Mussolini kind of figure who seized power in this democracy and just out of sheer competence built up this really impressive kind of empire on the island. I mean, like most of the Greek cities in Sicily are subject to Dionysius and several of the cities in southern Italy. Of course, you know, the, the coastline of southern Italy and Sicily is heavily, heavily Greek, and it has been for centuries at this point. <clears throat> but so Plato gets, gets, you know, he makes friends with Dionysius and there's stories about their interactions. Uh, and maybe they were kind of, um, you know, there's some, some, some testiness on both sides. And I, I, some of these stories are, you know, apocryphal, but, you know, um, essentially Plato says in the seventh letter, I was not that impressed with Dionysius's court. It was not a healthy place. Uh, there was, uh, and Dionysius is known as a lover of culture, but you know, it, it, it was a lavish place. It was, you know, it was not, it, Socrates would have been kind of bored and disgusted. It's the, the impression that he, that he gives, but, but he got invited and he, he hung out there. So, you know, he was interested, right? And, um, and this might have had something to do with the fact that he had an international reputation. Maybe it was his family connections. I mean, I'm sure you go to Dionysius and you're like, hey, this is the nephew of Critias. He'd be like, whoa, bring him in. So maybe it was family connections. But you know, Critias was like Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are, these, are power, these, are, these are powerful men who don't much care about these, uh, you know, like social stigmas, presumably, right? If you're, exactly. a, Mussolini fi if you're a Mussolini figure and you're kind of uh, dominant and in control, in power... Uh, you're not going to be scared away by the fact that, you know, it happened to be Hitler's nephew. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that, that might've been part of it. The other thing that Plato's doing over there is he's getting to know the philosophers in Southern Italy. And there's some really interesting things going on. And it's a shame we don't really have great sources on this, but there's a, um, in Tarentum, which is in the kind of instep of the boot of Italy. And that is a old gold Greek city powerful Greek city, one of the, one of the big ones, it's starting to look like philosophers are running the place. This is where Pythagoras ended up in Tarentum. He was from back East, but he ended up founding communities like around Tarentum. And the, 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 the most famous <clears throat> Pythagorean of this period is Archytas, A-R-C-H-Y-T-A-S, Archytas of Tarentum, who is like one of the closest things you get to a philosopher king looking figure um, in this period, now, Archytas is, is, he's not actually a king. He's like a first man in the state, kind of like a Pericles. And again, it's a democracy. It's like a, you know, collective government at Tarentum. But Archytas is famous for mathematical um, theories, but he's also like a general and a politician. And the, the Pythagoreans of Tarentum are actually starting to be very influential. And this is a story I tell in the life of Agesilaus that I just finished as a king of Sparta. Agesilaus' great nemesis is this guy, Epaminondas of Thebes, who was trained by a Pythagorean named Lysus, who was an exile from Tarentum. So the Pythagorean philosophers have are starting to get a lot of influence. And this Epaminondas is like probably a, around Plato's age maybe a little younger, and he's living as a vegetarian. He doesn't take a wife. He's like really, he's the real deal kind of like philosopher leader. So 
So this is kind of where it's happening. Tarentum, the east is, is where you're kind of getting this, maybe a solution to Plato's problem that he kind of began with of like, how do you associate philosophy and power and like have a better state run by better people? And they may have figured it out. So, so he learns, he makes friends there. It's not really clear the details, but whatever he learns, he takes back. And, and this is scholars typically divide his dialogues into uh, the early period, the middle period, and the late period. And the middle period is like, so the, the visit to the West is the dividing point between the, the early period and the middle period. And Plato comes back and um, with lessons from the Pythagoreans. And this is when he writes his most, you know, iconic, famous dialogues, probably the Republic middle period dialogue, the whole idea of a philosopher king, you know, he's thinking of people like Archytas, maybe of Dion. Um, he's, uh, he writes the Phaedo, the Phaedrus, um, uh, symposium, all of these dialogues that have, well, we could, we could talk more in detail about the dialogues. But, um, like there's Pythagorean elements all over these things, the, the importance of mathematics, like Plato has this conviction that rulers, people who are destined to rule need to study objective math. They need to, and this is a lot of what they do in the, in the academy. And this is basically, this is around the time that he founds his school. Probably once he returns from Southern Italy is when he founds his school, he's yeah, built, maybe imagine we have to imagine this. He's built him up of, <clears throat> of a reputation, and he's he, you know he has students willing to join him in this endeavor. And this is like when he founds the academy, which is outside the walls of Athens. It's named after, well, his school is named after this outdoor gymnasium called the Academia in in uh, in Athens. He buys a little plot of land there, and he starts. He starts doing whatever he does at the academy, and it seems to be okay. Math is an important part of that, um, and, and it's like it's not just like astrology and numerology; it's like real geometry. Like Euclid kind of comes from the Platonic tradition, actually, in the next generation. Um, so uh, <clears throat> he comes back. He founds a school, um, and I think that it's really the idea of the school is one of the big takeaways that he had from the Pythagoreans. And they were, they were real innovators in terms of like building communities around philosophy that lasts generation to generation. Um, these kind of like ascetic brotherhoods that you have in the early Pythagorean communities that we don't know a whole lot about, but this is something that Plato probably took from them actually. So could the you pause idea, on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned earlier uh, Pythagoras going around and founding communities. And I was mm -hmm. curious when you said that, I was kind of curious what that it meant exactly. Give us just real quick a sketch of what are these communities. So I get the impression, are these like really determined, committed men who are almost leaving society to pursue the truth and like weird vegetarian like uh, habitats, like living in caves or something? Uh, that That's kind of the impression I get, but w am I wrong? What What are these communities exactly? How do they work? 
that's the basic idea. Pythagoras is a real guru kind of a figure, and he has all these weird rules that you have to follow. Like, when you get up out of your bed, don't leave an impression on your bed. That's like, that's like haram to leave an impression on your bed. Don't eat beans. You can't eat beans besides animals. Uh, maybe because beans have souls. It's not really clear. But these men were not forming families and living like normal civic lives. You know, they? it's like some of them were. He wasn't a total, he wasn't totally against like m marriage and, and procreation, but they were, there's definitely a sense that they were living apart and they were persecuted too. And the, I don't know the history all that well. It's not on the tip of my fingers, but they're, they're, they do get driven out of communities for being weird. And maybe it's because they have political ambitions and they're starting to, you know, try to get influence in the state. And this is something that their enemies can leverage against them. They're weird. And how are they making money? How are, A, how are they making money? And B, what types of productions are they actually doing, right? Because are they are they just like drawing symbols on a, on the floor in dust? Or are they producing books as groups? Are they going on lecture tours? Uh, what are they producing exactly and how are they making money? I don't know and I don't know. I think this is really the patronage model. The, the evidence is so spotty. And uh, and kind of anecdotal, um, but maybe I'll but research that, that and get back to you on that. Sure. But the point is that Plato sees there's power here. He sees, well, these per these Pythagoreans are doing something and they're gaining currency, they're gaining influence, they're they're making a dent in how mm -hmm. people think about the world. And so, what does what does Plato take from that? What 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 is Plato's uh, vision and how does he begin building it? One thing that scholars think he definitely. That, that he was very inspired from the Pythagoreans from is um, the importance of mystery. It, remember I talked about Pythagoras. There's a kind of a sense that it's a religious cult, that there's like layers of commitment and you don't see everything if you're on the outer layer, but you, as, as you work your way in, you get more and more, you know, uh, forthright revolution, revelation of... I mean, maybe you didn't find out about the beans thing until you got into the fourth circle. It's, but you know, and that's one of the reasons why these they're so secretive about their teachings. But so, mystery cults are a, a, a wider, much wider phenomenon in the Greek world, right. of course. And the Eleusinian mysteries, famously at Athens, it's like um, this kind of kind of a semi-private, semi-public religious experience. It's a kind of another story. Uh, mystery just means secret in Greek. So there's like secret cults that you you have to be initiated into to get to to like get into the the protected space and the inner sanctum uh, to see whatever it is you're supposed to see and not tell anybody about. And this is a powerful, powerful aesthetic that you see in the Republic, for example, the dream at the end, the the myth of Ur. There's like there's like a kind of a culmination point, obviously in the the story of the cave. That's it's kind of an inverted mystery cult, maybe um, because you want to get out into the light. Uh, but the symposium is very. There's a lot, all this kind of sense of you know, that you have to penetrate deeper into the nature of reality to really see what the gods see, and that it takes asceticism it takes a kind of moral seriousness to get there it takes an intellectual seriousness and um and that there's a some there's some kind of vision that is salvific and i'm not saying that that's like his doctor but that's definitely an aesthetic of these stories that he tells 
um, in, in the dialogues, especially at this period. And I mean, you can kind of hypothesize at this point that this was the dynamic of his school, but definitely from the schools, the platonic schools of late antiquity that I studied directly m- much more in my, uh, in my work and what, what people just, we just have a ton of evidence about this, that this is the way that philosophical schools, especially platonic philosophical schools, which continued for a, about a millennium after Plato died, um, that the way that it works is you, you have like kind of layers of commitment at the school. You have the, the hearers, like the philosopher will give a kind of a public lecture on some kind of anodyne, but entertaining subject. And that'll be used to, excuse me, to, you know, edify you and maybe tempt you hopefully into wanting to learn more. And as you kind of spend more time, maybe, maybe you kind of increase your financial commitment in some very polite gentlemanly way that is not, not a transaction. It's a gift maybe, but you know, the, the levels of commitment correspond to your level of initiation access to the master and and like access to the truths contained within plato like plato wrote his text in such a way that it suggests that there's a deeper meaning to the dialogue that you don't get on a first reading and this is a thing that people are already doing with the myths of homer and hesiod they're already talking about allegory and like deeper meanings to the myths um, so he's drawing on a lot aesthetically, and I think that this corresponds, even at this stage, certainly at a later stage, to um, to the way that the school itself is structured, um, of like, there's a hierarchy. So, right. so that's one thing that he gets from the Pythagoreans. So he's using mystery strategically to create a larger structure that pulls people in and makes people curious and motivated to go deeper. And if the text isn't giving you everything on the surface of the text, well, I guess I got to go to Plato's Academy physically to try to figure out what's really going on here. This is really key. And this dynamic is very clear in the seventh letter. It's one of the things that, that modern philosophy department people don't like about it. They don't want Plato to be like that. Um, but it's very clear in the seventh letter, and um, and you know why why don't they like that? Well, okay, let's talk about the seventh letter for just a sec here. Um, the I think the bias against it comes from two two sources. One, the fact that Plato is getting involved with tyrants in Sicily and um, you know supporting a totalitarian regime or something, and he's also very explicit about is in his belief that the Greeks should drive the Carthaginians off the island of Sicily. There's this long uh, conflict between Greeks and Carthaginians on Sicily. He's like, let's drive the barbarians away. So he's kind of an imperialist, uh, just like Dionysius was and most Greeks of this period were. But that's distasteful to some, you know, obviously. The other thing that people don't like about it is arguably he undercuts the entire project of academic platonic philosophy as it's practiced today, because he says in my writings, I never put the essence of what I teach in my school into my writings. It would be silly to do so. 
and I've never written down my doctrines actually. So like, it doesn't totally undermine everything that philosophy departments do, but essentially he says, you can't get the, the real thing from a text. And, um, and, and this, this is certainly an impression that you, you already get from the Republic that there's like something more there. You just want him to speak straight with you. Maybe if you want to know what it really means. And, um, but like he's still, and, and, and this mystery function has, has a, it's a, has a tempting effect too, right? Like just like the earlier dialogues, he's trying to, trying to entertain channel authority, I think in the, um, in the early the so-called apparatic dialogues, but in these middle dialogues, especially he's really turning up the, the seduction. And so one example of this is the description of, you look at the description of the ideal philosophical character in book six of the Republic. So he describes, you know, they have, he and Glaucon, I think they're Adamanthus, whatever. They're having this discussion, Socrates, about, um, you know, what kind of character it would be suited to eventually become a philosopher king. And what does he look like? He's uh, smart. He learns quickly. He's strong of body, but um, but but like curious, sensitive, probably from a wealthy family, probably like well-bred. I mean, he's essentially describing his ideal student, you know? And uh, and he says characters like that tend to either the, the, the people do their potential that have the potential to do the greatest good also have the potential to become the worst people. Uh, and so they need the proper training and, and now it has a function within the argument of the Republic, but it also is like, Hey, you get this far in the book, you're probably one of these people and you're probably going to be like, huh, maybe I should meet this Plato guy or at least find somebody who knows about him. So it's in a way, it's like a calling card for his students as they kind of go out and make connections and they start, you know, spreading the network. Like, right, it's a tool talk, for that too. Talk more about networks now. Talk, talk yeah. about how the ideas and the books produce disciples and readers and how Plato uniquely and intelligently fomented this network structure what was the shape of that network structure how did he how did he facilitate it what what do we know about his viewpoints regarding that network structure and just try to unpack that yeah well there's two ways to go about that um one is to look at people actual people another is to look at passages that talk about this let's let's talk about some people first um, there are, uh, there's lists in antiquity of all of Plato's students who went on to get involved in politics. Um, I just, I mean, I could name some names like this passage from Athenaeus, Euphraeus sojourned with King Perdiccas in Mac Macedonia and Philip of Opus seized power in his own state. Parmenio, the Macedonian caught him and put him to death and risk takers, huh? Uh, Calippus the Athenian, this is a guy who Plato may be sent to help Dion stage a coup in Syracuse later um, and ended up murdering Dion very embarrassingly to Plato. Uh, Euagon of Lampsacus. There's all these names of like Plato's students going on and like 
doing stuff in their cities. And, um, and so like, if you look at the, the list of the names, they're from all over the Greek world, especially cities that were allied with Athens in the Athenian, uh, maybe second league, but you know, they're, they're not necessarily like Timaeus of Sisychus. Um, you know, he made himself a tyrant in his own city in Asia minor. And like, they're definitely getting involved. I, I think, you know, a lot of what we know about how networks work act in practice comes from later sources, uh, the way that they write letters to each other and their practices around writing letters, but there's definitely a lot of economic connection people sailing here and there and carrying letters back and forth. And, and this is, I mean, what it, what it does is it ties in with a very ancient Greek institution of friendship, of guest friendship, of hospitality. Um, the, the Athenian, well, Plato, and I think Greeks in particular, uh, all Greeks are very much believers in this idea that your network is your net worth. And so it's like something that you even see in the, um, you know, the Homeric poems where your power in your own city has a lot to do with who your friends are in other cities, because in this network, in this, you know, the Greek world, it's just a very decentralized and yet highly, highly interconnected world. And this is one of the reasons that they care so much about guest friendship and gift giving. And they, they talk about this obsessively and you could even see this in Homer. It's another reason why the Greeks are so obsessed with their culture of being a Greek, because this is the common ground that they build their kind of like, um, power, their personal, like fortune of friends on is this common culture that they can relate on poetry and music. So there's, there's something really deep that he's tapping into, but he's making it specific with this kind of brotherhood of philosophy, this kind of shared participation in the mysteries of knowledge of the forms or whatever it is that you learn of geometry. It's kind of common culture that he's building through long, long contact in person. Okay, so let, let's drill down into that, though, and really sketch for us the the diagram, if you will, the the engineering diagram. Like, what types of things is he doing and how are they connecting? So, for instance, is he giving lectures? Uh, is he touring and giving lectures in different areas? Is he charging money for these lectures? Is he, you know, when he publishes a book, where is it going exactly? And where is the academy meeting? How often is it meeting? Try to get into some of these details of like, what is the platonic machinery look like as a whole? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, a lot of it's conjectural. Just our sources are kind of thin, but it's clear that they spend a lot of time studying, like literally, how do you, you know, determine the length of a hypotenuse if you know the legs? And, you know, how do you get the diet, you know, the, the area of a circle and stuff like that. Um, but they are definitely doing a lot of what you see in the platonic dialogues, like interrogating concepts, um, through dialectic. I think that they're also doing a lot of really regular stuff. So Plato probably, probably has some kind of exoteric teaching that he lectures regularly, you know, to just to do the whole public facing thing it's not really there's no evidence of what you know when he does that or how often or what exactly the contents are but just like that's probably happening um in addition to the esoteric stuff that only the kind of inner circle gets and but it's and so probably so what what 
you what what is a presumption of the whole project is whatever you can get from an Isocrates, from a Gorgias, from a Lysias, you can get at Plato's school. You are going to learn how to speak in public. You are going to learn to be a leader, to be like a person in society. It's not all math and, you know, abstruse, annoying, Socratic bickering that you see in some of these aporetic dialogues. There's some of that, but it's only a part of it. And um, it's really like he he is really staking everything on this is the best leadership training. It's got to work for ambitious people and it's got to be plausible. I think that's important to keep in mind that it's not just like, you know, majoring in getting a master's in philosophy. Okay. And how was it intertwined with these powerful figures, the wealthy people, the tyrants and so on? Like, are these people donating to the academy to, to keep right. it going? Are they giving land? What are they doing? And also maybe in the same breath, connect that to the other kind of economics. Like I know Socrates, I think was charging for students, but Plato was not. So right. kind of explain, explain the underlying economic model. Yeah, that is, hmm. Plato talks in it, 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 in so many of the dialogues about how Socrates doesn't charge for lessons, right? This seems to be a hint that he's like, he's saying, I'm not like Isocrates over there. I'm not like all these other guys that are charging big fees. Because you look at somebody, so Plato's greatest competitor is Isocrates. He's about the same age starts off as a logographer, ends up becoming just basically a trainer of rhetoric, but he calls himself a philosophos. So they're, they're the same category in people's minds. The whole distinction between Isocrates and Plato is like one is a philosopher and one is a rhetorician, like that's completely invisible to the contemporaries. Isocrates and just, is very wealthy students. And just to be clear, this concept of the philosophos, this is like brand new, right? This is kind of unprecedented or? It's it's around it's around as, a, as an adjective. But it's not a lifestyle. It's not a. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a, it's not a known vocation or a known way of actually living out a whole life at, with this as your profession. That's brand. it's a synonym for sophist, if anything, a, a less common synonym for sophist. That's more like an adjective, a lover of wisdom. Okay, what's that supposed to mean? But I guess yeah. just trying to make clear for for readers and listeners, like the term sophist is often thought of as a pejorative term. It's mm -hmm. referring to someone who's kind of you know, we'll teach you to do anything with words to get your way, essentially, right? And yeah. this idea of the philosopher as of discovering the objective truth of reality and, uh, and, and and that distinction between the philosopher and the sophist, that's what's at stake here, right? That's what's being kind of invented, essentially. Is that, am I understanding that right? Yeah, yeah that's that's correct. I think that's correct. Um, and basically, like, Plato is, is discovering the economic machinery to make the philosopher powerful and sustainable and and for the philosopher to exist in a real economic material way right 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 so so what what ends up and i think you can give plato a lot of credit for this but i'm not i'm not sure he deserves all the credit but what ends up becoming the standard model for philosophers later is you teach rhetoric and you get paid to teach rhetoric and then you have now pay your bills and you have a few students that are you know, that are, that will do philosophy with you. And that is kind of like the moral 
mission that almost gives you, and philosophy isn't just like this kind of icing on the cake. It kind of gives you this added credibility. It's a way to up your game as a rhetorician to say that you can offer something seri more serious. Um, but, uh, but the money really comes from teaching young men how to speak and write. Now, what Plato is doing is, um, it's not clear that he's charging for anything like that. He's well off. His students, I think he probably is operating more on a kind of gift-giving model where the, the real economic machine, if there is one, to support the work of philosophy is the network of wealthy people that it's more about power than it is about money, if that makes sense. And, you, you know, you, you, can, you can leverage connection with powerful people for financial gain, but it's, not, it's indirect. And how is he getting it, though? How does he indirectly solicit it? Is he going on, uh, you know, a donation tour asking and inviting? Is it um, all kind of backdoor, like you're not supposed to ask, you're supposed to just wait till it's gifted? Tell us about how it actually works. Yeah, we can we can kind of speculate. But but basically, I think the way that it works is he, you know, he has this big tour to the West. He probably makes other tours that we don't know about. Uh, but the standard thing would be you make some tours, you you talk to some powerful people, you recruit some students, and then you have your students, once you've trained them up, do the same thing when you get older and you can stay in place and kind of have your people go out and make connections on your behalf. But um, but there's an interesting... Um, so in Greek, the word for honor, time, is also the word for price. And this is very important in Homer, for example, but what Plato is trying to do, and he talks about this, like it's all over the place in the seventh letter, is he's, he's very concerned about the time of philosophy, the honor of philosophy. And there, there are other words that talk about financial price. And it's not like there's an ambiguity there. He's, he is talking about honor, but like they do think of honor in, in very concrete terms as like the price that you, that you're worth, like that you would be ransomed for, for example. And so there is this kind of like more archaic gift-giving culture that there is an economy there, but it's hard to quantify. And part of the point of it is that it's harder to quantify because once you quantify it, you almost set a cap to it, right? Um, but but it's I would call it more of a power network than an economic network, but other people at the same time are using philosophy as like as the kind of uh the extra that they can offer to kind of want get a one-up on these regular old teachers of rhetoric of public speaking um and philosophy definitely can it's starting to get that honor that that credibility that makes it like you know a prestige educational brand I, that makes sense yeah that makes sense so the Acad plato's academy is basically offering all of the practical things you would get from the other rhetoric teachers or the sophists, but also this other special thing, this new thing of philosophy, which is somewhat enigmatic, but also more prestigious. Yeah, he invents the idea of philosophy as a prestige brand mm. for education. It wasn't yeah. like prestigious before then. It was, yeah. I'm still just trying to fill in a few gaps in understanding how this magically produced big backers that were actually like sending checks and so obviously not checks at the time, whatever, actually sending resources to make this thing run. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, maybe we just don't have that on record, but 
uh, you did talk a little bit about Plato going to Syracuse and mm-hmm. these kinds of stories. Like, just try to fill that in a little bit more if you could, and then I'll stop pressing you. Yeah, yeah. I think people probably end up paying their own bills. They're probably wealthy enough to just support themselves, and Plato is wealthy enough that maybe they'll make a donation when they get there, and so so that you get free meals if you come. But it's it's not like it's it's like a capital intensive sort of thing. Okay, so okay, so basically, uh, the, it is a big background variable here that that Plato was born into money and had a certain uh, you know base level of resources that he could live on and kind of coast on. And yes, and his students so, yeah. too important. And his students, people he's going okay. after. Yeah. Okay, great. So that that's fair enough, and that 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 explains my my uh, confusion around that. But yeah. nonetheless, nonetheless, what he's doing is he's basically brokering power not money that that's what you meant by that that the the money itself is kind of taken care of that's sort of in the background that's kind of abstracted out because Mm -hmm. we're talking about essentially privileged people um but what he's doing brilliantly is uh just basically building relationships with powerful backers on the one hand and then through his writing he is basically selecting for the cream of the crop in terms of students the students come into the academy and then he gives them this kind of you know, um, sophism plus package, if you will, and that sends them off into the world to have much more success than they would have otherwise. And he actually succeeded in this. And that, that's and right. That, and then those people presumably give back to the academy in certain ways. Um, and and that's the machinery that that's the power machinery in a nutshell. Or what am I missing? Or what? Yeah, else? that's what, right. What I think other? that's right. Yeah, and that like that's how he gets the the endowment, so to speak, right from the very loyal alumni. That's there, I think clearly and uh, and he does create a, a, a like it, it does kind of like this pairing of rhetoric and philosophy as a business model is something that he is pioneering so there are other people that are able to build businesses kind of because of this brand that plato has created later um for sure but maybe it would make sense to go and look at um what he does in syracuse as an example of like how this works yeah so in 367, Plato gets an invitation to come back to Syracuse. One of the friends he made there is uh, was a, 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 a marriage relation of the tyrant, of, of the Mussolini, of Dionysius I. And his name is Dion. Confusingly, they have the same four letters, their first name. So Dion is some kind of relative by marriage. And Dionysius's son, Dionysius II, we all just call Dionysius from here on out. Okay, it's this, but it's the younger, Dionysius the younger, is now the tyrant of Syracuse. And Dion invites Plato, come back to Syracuse. I think we have a lot of potential here. By this time, Plato is 60. He's got his school. He's got his, you know, some of his greatest ideas worked out about, you know, the Republic is out. Dion's read it. Dion is, is, um, so Dion was a young man, maybe in his twenties when Plato visited the first time and he met Plato there and they became friends. And Dion has been keeping in touch all these years and he invites him back because now he knows what Plato's all about. And he says, this is maybe an opportunity to turn Dionysius the second, the younger toward philosophy. The problem is Dionysius II, well, first of all, he's been neglected apparently by his father. He's, he's just not been very well educated. 
he's another problem is he's in his late twenties. Maybe he's late because old is thirty. So he's kind of set in his ways more than Plato would like. But um and he loves to party, you know, all the wealth and the courtiers and the you know, the ladies and the drink and I mean he just doesn't live a very um sober life. And Dion really they see, you know, there's a lot at stake, like the control of the island of Syracuse of Sicily by the Greeks. And but Plato as Dion knows from experience, is the sort of guy that can get through to a young man. You know, like if your son is, you know, struggling with video games, you might call in Plato. Can you talk to him? Like Plato is just incredibly winning in person. And so he, you know, he has some hope that, that Plato can get through to this kid. So he goes to, so he invites Plato to Syracuse. And so Plato visits Syracuse and they, they basically try to win over Dionysius the second to philosophy to a more sober way of life hmm. and uh and and i think that shows a um dion this, there's a clearly a serious political game here like right if dion can get plato influencing the tyrant then he's he's gonna have a better position himself plato's motivation in this is pretty obvious too and he's he's very frank about it if I could get Dionysius II to love philosophy, imagine what that would do for the team A of philosophy. Like this is his whole project. He wants to increase the honor of philosophy. It's all kind of like, it's not just all this some kind of crass brand building exercise, but he sees the potential for like mankind. If, if powerful men honor philosophy to this extent, and it could really influence this young tyrant for the best and you know when he does this when dion invites plato over okay maybe he says says him something more kind of you know in depth than this in in the letter that he writes but plato basically says you know this wasn't about founding some you know ideal state where the women and men you know don't have that where where they like women fight in the wars and like nobody knows who their kid is like you find in the republic it's it's really about making the man at the top of the pyramid as just as possible it's pretty simple it's not like it's it's a very practical kind of proposal actually he's a, he's a savvy man and so he goes and and unfortunately they fail and uh the um the courtiers get it into Dionysius II's ear that you know, Dion is trying to manipulate him through this, you know, guru philosopher guy, and he needs to get away from this philosophy and get away from his controlling uncle and all this stuff. Um, so it kind of falls on its face, unfortunately, and Dion ends up getting exiled um, to to the Peloponnese after this. But Dion is the one who pays for the land of Plato's school, is that right? So there is a story that, uh, for one thing, uh, a, a spurious story probably but it's an interesting story that that Dionysius the first the older tyrant uh, when he sent that he that he banished Plato from his court and he sent him back to Athens with this Spartan guy and he with and he said hey when you get close to Athens just sell Plato into slavery <laughs> so there's a story that Plato was sold into slavery and it was Dion who ransomed him 
that's one story. Uh, there's stories that other people ransomed him. Uh, but yeah, there is one story that um, Dion uh, bought some land for Plato's Academy. And it's not clear that he bought all of the land or that he bought any of the land, but that is one account that, you know, uh, it's suggested that he made a gift, like a, sub like a substantial gift, because Dion has a lot of money as the, you know, re marriage relation. So maybe he built an altar on Plato's Academy. Um, the There's kind of, you know, debate in the sources, but like he's definitely a fin financial supporter of Plato on some level and has wealth like of a, of a totally different magnitude than Plato has. So like he's an important character. And, and I think, I believe this is right, that basically it's after Dion gets exiled from Syracuse. So after the second visit of Plato to Syracuse, the Dion really gets closer to Plato's Academy. And he ends up, in his exile, he ends up spending a lot of time there, uh, you know, get, getting deeper and making more connections and uh, befriending a lot of Plato's friends. And here's where the kind of business model, if you will, comes in. Because remember, all along, Plato's project is how do we find or create the people capable of ruling in a city of the kind that we envision and Dion, and he's kind of a talent broker. Dion is there and he's meeting a lot of people that he's going to end up doing some big things with. Um, and when Plato is in Sicily, he brings his entourage as well. He brings Pusippus. So like Plato is, the Dion is not just interested in Plato's political ideas. He's interested in Plato's talent network. And this is a big value add that Plato brings to the table for somebody like Dion. This is why somebody in power would want to associate with Plato because he's done all this work of vetting and filtering for the smartest, most ambitious, most well-connected students who are really open to relationships with like-minded people who have spent that time with Plato. It's a very powerful connection, and Dion can see the value of that as a powerful tyrant. Friend. Yeah, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. So it, it seems like the more we route out this story of how Plato's intellectual life grew and took hold and succeeded. It seems like really one way to summarize it is that he understood better than anyone else at the time, the, the network nature of influence and power when it comes to ideas. And he understood that it wasn't about making money in terms of cash. It wasn't about, uh, even, you know, having, you know, the most widely read book or the book that's talked about by the people in your town and that everyone around you in a popular sense loves and discusses. It was about using true ideas, excellent writing, and truly stellar elite work as a calling card that would gain respect and prestige and, and attention and, and admiration from the wider widest possible network of elite players by attracting that respect from elites you would then become the object of interest for young people and aspirants and people who wanted to become great themselves because you had these elites paying respect to you the aspirants would naturally see you as the source of of, of teaching that they wanted to pursue because the ideas and the books themselves the dialogues were very thoughtfully laced with mystery and certain seductive qualities 
basically that would bring a lot of young people into the mix. Plato would train these young people and then everything becomes even more valuable and attractive to the powerful elite players because now lo and behold, Plato's brand has kind of monopolized all of the most promising young people and movers and shakers of the next generation. Is that, uh, what, what else am I missing? Or is that a good summary? I think it's a great summary. And, and then you can see how this whole idea of the book is not the thing fits into this, the picture, which, which you see in the seventh letter. You also see it in the Phaedrus, um, in this important passage, the story of Thuth and Thamus or Thoth and Amon. There's a account he gives, uh, Socrates talks about, well, the God Thoth comes to the King Amon and he's got all of these inventions and he's telling the King Amon about how great they're going to be for mankind. And he's got the plow and he's got the whatever, uh, fire. And, but he comes to writing King, they're going to, this is the greatest invention ever. Everybody's going to have an amazing memory because we'll be able to record everything. And King Amon is like, ah, ah, Thoth. You know, it's, it's one man's job to invent something. It's another man's job to figure out what it's good for. But haven't you realized that you have created a technology to help people forget, not remember, because they're going to write things down and not remember them. And, th and this is a longer discussion about like how people really are actually overvaluing writing. This is coming from the greatest writer of the fourth century, at least, you know, Plato has really mastered this technology, but he's, it's really about this other thing that he's created this it's about for him it's about changing people it's about philosophy's ability to form a soul and form connections between people and this happens over time and you need that personal contact for him and the personal contact i mean now you can see it's the, the network is the thing the individuals are the thing it's not the books the books are the means a really, really useful means, but it's not. The yeah. Thing. So it's all so incredibly and surprisingly relevant to the contemporary intellectual economy or the marketplace of ideas, if you will, because, well, think about it. I mean, there's parallels, uh, so many parallels here, right? Because today, if you want to build a body of work and, you know, make your dent in the world in the realm of ideas, you have all these choices, right? You could write a book if you want self-publish it you could write a blog or a newsletter you could do videos you could do a podcast and it's all so open and indeterminate and this is really giving us an interesting example uh, for sorting through some of these questions ourselves isn't it maybe we could talk a little bit more about this because I, I wonder if you have any other takes or or implications you want to draw from the lesson of Plato one thing that comes to my mind is that you know in the question I just posed about how should one distribute one's energies in terms of different media and strategies and things of this nature, one clear possible implication of the of Plato's lesson is that you want really everything to be pointing back to kind of in-person events and, and community building and stuff like that. And uh, I mean, I'm very flattered in a way by this uh, lesson that you've been teaching because it, it actually maps really, really well yeah. with my intuition into my own intuitions about how I built my operation, right? Because, uh, you know, I've always tried, I've always personally just felt intuitively that you want to basically make as much free public content as possible. And that's really not where you want to, you know, 
charge money and it's not where you want to create cutoffs with at the level of getting just ideas out there. And, and that's something I've always, that's one reason why I don't do like a paid Substack. I don't do a monetized newsletter type thing. Um, cause that, that's never made a lot of sense to me. It's always made more sense to me that you want your ideas to just be out there as far and wide as possible. You don't want those to be constrained by, by price tags or anything like that. But then if people find value in it and really connect with you on some level and they kind of take a step into your orbit, then yeah, you should come up with ways to, you know, make it economically sustainable, but really you want everything to kind of point towards actually building a crew of awesome people who are really interesting and smart and original. And when you get all those people in the room, then it's like, whoa, the, the, the world is our oyster. It's like, we could do so many different things with this group of real people that we know and like. And, you know, again, not to toot my own horn, but like the annual meetings that we do are like really, really like this, you know, like when you have like 20 people who are all writers and founders or whatever, artists, just like interesting people on the same kind of vibe who are have high energy, high agency and high intellect and erudition. It's like, whoa, from there, you can imagine building all kinds of crazy valuable things and perpetuating things into the future in all number of different ways. Um, and so what else could you say about this? What am I, am, am I right? And what am I missing? Are there other lessons or what, what direct lessons have you drawn from Plato in terms of building your own project? Yeah. I mean, really many of what you just described, it's like get out into the meat space and like realize that what, like, what is the thing that you're actually creating? It's this kind of very, it's, I think one of the reasons it's hard to realize that is because it's not you know, the, the payoff is hard to quantify, right? Yeah. Like it's that relationship. It's this kind of feeling of commonality that takes a long time to craft and you can craft it now with, with media and new media, but it, you know, th the payoff for me has always been, okay, what are we going to do in the world, in the physical world? And what can we do with the network once we create it is, is important. Um, and, uh, yeah, like it, it, opens up a lot of possibilities, but yeah. And I think the other lesson is the network is a thing, but that inter interaction actually circles back around and makes your ideas better too. And this is something that David Perel talks about, you know, right from conversation, conversation and these in-person interactions these intense, maybe focused events, I think it, it captures a lot of what it was like to be in one of these philosophical schools and why they could command such like, you know, fiery devotion and Plato just intuited that and how it creates better thought and like the, the dialogues of the, the middle period, I think come out of this ferment of on a, co a combination of like relating these ideas to people in public also seeing what resonates with the inner circle and this tension right. it, it, it is a feedback loop a, a virtuous cycle totally it's there's also this interesting commonality between the world you're describing back back in plato's day and our world which is the really decentralized nature of of just the world right it's like you know you could argue that in the maybe the 20th century we we just generally had a more centralized culture in society like everything was more centralized right you had massive corporations, big bureaucracies, all of the centralization just culturally in many ways, big universities, dominant kind of university brands, right? And nowadays it's just like everything is decentralizing to the point that everything just feels chaotic and unsure. Like no one knows today who really are 
the best thinkers or what really are the most pro the truest ideas like what are truly the best ideas to subscribe to to actually live by today no one knows it's never been more uncertain it's never been more unclear and what you're seeing now is this proliferation of little islands little sense making tribes and or little orbits of of intelligence and cultural activity uh, becoming patterned uh but it's incredibly emergent it's incredibly decentralized and there's uh, it's like a thousand little islands of of sense making and, and creativity uh an archipelago not unlike the the greek city-states right very 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 much so and so i think that's one thing that i'm hearing loud and clear in the lessons that you're sharing with us today is that like the the primacy that plato put on the in-person networks was in large part probably because he sensed that no one knows really what's going on no one knows what are the true ideas no one knows you know what books they should be reading instead of what other books they should be reading but but what people do know is who they like and who they trust and who their friends and who their friends mm -hmm. are then it's like in a world in a decentralized world of cultural chaos and uncertainty there is always going to be this kind of profound anchoring premium to the actual people you know and like and enjoy and learn with and 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 can actually riff with and who you're going to be writing your blog posts to and you're going to be writing your letters to and they're going to be replying to you right it's like that's always going to dominate in a way in a decentralized confusing context and it seems like he was basically like betting everything on that like i'm just going to build the dominant elite in person solution to this uh like you know confusing decentralized archipelago do you see this or uh would you add anything to that or take anything away from that yeah it's i mean i think plato's career is like a playbook for the intellectual world of the network state you know where you don't have these authorities and it's all negotiated kind of in real time and the way that he got to where to the success that he did is focus relentlessly on the audience that you're going after really drill down into who do you want to be with you what kind of people are out there that you want to attract to your project uh aiming as high as possible and uh he did a lot of i think there's there's more to add there's another discussion to have about like counter positioning against other figures he does a lot of that in the dialogues you don't necessarily see that going on he and isocrates are in this like intense gentlemanly rivalry and, and Isocrates will kind of talk about Plato but, oh but maybe he's not actually talking about Plato it's just those other sophists but wait he's talking about Plato isn't he oh I'm not sure you know there's just all this kind of like one-upmanship that he and he mentions Plato I the, the one living figure that he mentions in his dialogues is Isocrates in the Phaedrus and it's clear that he's like going after I'm trying to define myself against so you know at, at, I think you might have to kind of pick your tribe on some level or you know use what other people are doing as a foil uh intellectually that's that's another really important strategy for you know intellectual kind of brand building there's so many this is one of the most interesting things about looking at intellectuals from antiquity is this kind of like brand building happens in practice in real time in a decentralized way through associations and through kind of you know self self-fashioning self-presentation and uh and then this is uh, <laughs> academics today find it so distasteful <laughs> because they don't have to do it you know you have well, that certifying yeah. body and it's so that changes your psychology 
profoundly. Well, it's very interesting to think about all this in relationship to the university, because it's easy to see from this lesson you gave today that in a way, the from Plato's Academy up to the modern university, it's easy to see the the analogy. It's easy to see that there's a similar structure or inheritance there, which is that, you know, even to this day, like when people go to universities, the typical person who wants to go to a university really just wants to connect with other people their age who are smart. They want to find a husband or wife who's smart and they want to form adult friendships that are going to take them to the next stage of life in some ways. And, you know, the, inst the, the university as a modern institution is kind of just like a bureaucratic um, enactment of all of the intuitions that Plato is seeing in a way, but it becomes sclerotic and overly bureaucratized to the point that, you know, the, the philosophers are just paid a salary to show up and, you know, say a few words and to, to publish their articles in all of these kind of like bureaucratized institutional pathways, right? So the logic is kind of all the same, right? It's like mm -hmm. the prestige, the prestige laundering works in the same exact way. The network effect and the network appeal uh, to students, uh, the, that network power that you get is all the same. And a lot of it is, is all the same ideas. But the problem is that these modern overly bureaucratized institutions that are the universities have just become kind of uh, overrun with just too much dead weight, basically. It's like um, the, the, the institutional logic and the kind of heavy, oppressive bureaucratization suffocates all the rest. And so the, the logic is the same, but it's not able to actually discharge any of its duties or, or any, of, any of these um, you know functions that, that it's supposed to be. It's all just kind of grinded to a halt in a way. And now it makes perfect sense that you're seeing this proliferation of independent academics and, and people leaving academia and, you know, exiles and, and autodidacts and, and you name it, this just exit from this institutional machinery to essentially rebuild in a decentralized way what Plato was figuring out in his day. So it's like, I kind of see listening to your story, I see the course of Western history kind of being this like big arc where it's like, it starts decentralized, right? Plato figures out the structure of, of academies more or less gets cracks the code and understands it. Right. And then it starts going up. Right. And, uh, you know, up, up until like the 19th or 20th century, where the logic of an, an academy is kind of brought to its, its maximum kind of value aggregation ability. Right. But then it gets, it gets overly stuffy. It gets overly bureaucratized. Uh, it kind of stalls out and dies and then it goes back down back to this decentralized world. So it's like from Plato up to the university, down back to Plato, essentially back to the de the, the decentralized um, marketplace that we're now people like you and I are kind of figuring out for ourselves now. Is that how you see it? Yeah, yeah. It, it's like it didn't scale well. I mean, it, it, I don't think it even yeah. got close to its kind of scale limit in antiquity or maybe even until mid 20th century. And But, um, you know, I think... I think losing touch with, or maybe, well, maybe I say connecting with the original model and what was the essence of it, looking at that historical paradigm can help us to pare down like what is really the essence of this thing that we should look for in new institutions that we create. I mean, institutions are going to get recreated one way or another, like patterns are going to develop, mm -hmm. but maybe we can make better ones that'll not be sclerotic for another century or two, God willing. And you know, I, I see so many lessons for kind of 
institution builders of our day in this story, uh, for sure. Like that's, that's, I think the primary interest of it. Totally. Totally. So everybody go subscribe to the cost of glory podcast and you can learn more <laughs> about Alex at ancientlifecoach.com is where you can find his writing and more information connect with Alex. And I believe you are doing a retreat soon in Italy, which yes. sounds awesome. Sounds totally awesome. Um, I think you're going to walk around Italy with you and, and a couple of mates who are highly, highly educated on, you know, all of the cultural and intellectual delights of Italy. And it, I think you have a whole, a whole thing going on with that. Um, yeah. I we're focusing on Rome in particular, yeah. but yeah, it's, oh yeah, that's right. You're going, it's going to be a Rome. Go ahead and give it, give us the quick elevator pitch. And that's at ancientlifecoach.com forward slash retreat. Um, if I had the money and time to go do something like this and I was, I was, uh, interested in some edification on this front, I would 100% give my time and money to do this. Um, I think you'd be in good hands. So it, it has my full endorsement, uh, but tell people what they can expect. Um, I think you have a few spots open, right? Yeah, we're doing, we're kind of doing the Plato playbook or the ancient philosopher okay. playbook where, so the theme is, is speak, lead, retreat. We're doing, we're teaching you about classical rhetoric and hoping that some philosophy comes along to join, um, but it's a men's retreat. And we've got a few spaces left. We've got a really interesting group of guys that have already signed up. Um, we're going to be in, in Rome for about a week. Um, I know Rome pretty well, but my colleague lived there for like a decade. And he's just like one of the most knowledgeable people about Rome in the world who speaks English. And uh, so we're going to teach you about ancient rhetoric and see some of the great sites of Roman rhetoric and uh, have a great time. Dude, Rome is like the one of the best places in the world that I've ever been. It's one of my top favorites. It's like unbelievable. There's un, a completely unreal, especially if you're a Christian. Not only if you're a Christian, yes. but if you if if you are, I, w I would almost say like I've I've never been on one of your retreats and I don't know too much about it, but I know you pretty well now, Alex. I would say that if you're a man and you're a Christian and you have the time and money to even possibly pull this off, um, I think you should do it. If not now, do it at some point. You have to go to Rome. It's like if you're a Christian, yeah. it's just it's unreal. It's like you will never feel the same about Christianity after going. It's just like, you have to get to Rome. You really have to. And this sounds like as good, as good a pretext for doing that as any. So that's really cool. You're yeah, doing. and Eric's a traditional Catholic and he, he he knows the Christian parts of Rome just as well. And yeah, it's, uh, it's so mind -blowing. insane, dude. It's, it, yeah. it's the most insane place. It's like every single block has like a church. That's the most beautiful church you've ever seen. Like over and over and over again. It's, it's like, it's, nuts honestly it's like the the scale of the beauty and the amount of just the sheer amount and uh, of the beauty and the quality of the beauty like saint peter's one of the craziest places you could ever step into like i think saint peter's basilica is probably the single craziest place i've ever stepped foot in um it's just like it's so much more than you can imagine um from pictures it's like absurd anyway that's my 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 little uh love letter to rome amazing place yeah absolutely um dude this is awesome. Uh, anything we're leaving out? Um, it sounds like basically if you want to build a lasting in influence in, in the world, you need to build an academy and you do that by writing top-notch work, really paying close attention to quality and craftsmanship, writing to the most elite audience you possibly are capable of, letting those ideas get out there, not trying to charge money for anything unless you have to. And from the network that emerges, just cultivate that network. Uh, grow that network, allow for mystery, um, create layers for people to enter into where the, where the books are just the calling card, but the in-person network is kind of the 
the the real value that 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 everyone builds together and that people will get the most out of and that sounds like pretty much plato's playbook or anything else you you would really emphasize yeah time time would fail us there's a lot of examples of people doing this in antiquity and in the renaissance and I, yeah i think it's it's a fascinating and uh, an extremely fruitful model so yeah let's 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 do it Dude, it's it's really almost bizarre how much it maps onto the contemporary situation. So I think there's a lot here for people who are trying to find their own way um, in this new independent decentralized marketplace of ideas. Um, I never would have thought really until I met you that the ancient world has so much to teach on precisely this this challenge that people like you and I are trying to figure out. So I think this will be uh, very useful for for a lot of people kind of in our orbit. Yeah, and your community has been a real inspiration in me, like wanting to get this idea out more urgently, uh, for sure. So keep doing it. I'm, 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 I'm along for the ride. Totally. Thank you so much for the, for those kind words, I, and thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Uh, and like I said, yeah, check out Alex's retreat. Check out the Cost of Glory podcast. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, it's real nice, by the way. It's a very, very fine production value. Alex puts a ton of work into these highly well researched, you know, podcasts. Basically, like you know, like the Dan Carlin podcast, if you've ever listened to one of those, like detailed historical research podcasts with like a real attention to detail. And uh, I think Alex is building pretty much like, I think you're building this kind of like eternal evergreen store of audio knowledge in a way, not unlike what, what Plutarch did with his lives, but you're doing it basically in podcast format. So people should definitely yeah. check that out. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Justin.